Welcome to the Janassi Ranch Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Janassi. Thank you for joining me. I created this podcast to learn from people who are reimagining the way we work, live, and eat. Today, I'm joined by Nicole Buckley Biggs, a natural resources social scientist tackling climate and conservation challenges related to working lands. In this conversation, we discuss Nick's current research investigating the array of benefits that working lands provide and how they are mediated by different types of landowners with varying interests and management goals. Well, welcome, Nick. First of all, your LinkedIn profile is so, so intriguing. So thanks so much for joining. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. Nick, in your bio, you describe yourself as an agriculture and conservation social scientist and a futurist. Would really love to learn a little bit more about your background and what has brought you to do what you do today. I guess like a lot of folks in this space, I had a pretty winding path to academia. I studied anthropology as an undergrad, so I was really interested in in people and cultures, how people make decisions about how to live their lives. And um, I was not uh, learning about the environment back in college at that point. I was interested in in China and uh, Russia, and I was looking at kind of international cultural flows of how we share media and and other types of things, um, ethics. It was after college that I started to read in my free time outside of work, any books I could get my hands on around the food system, uh, sustainable agriculture, sustainable food, um, you know, omnivores, omnivores dilemma and inconvenient truth came out and it was kind of pushing me towards some more climate related reading. I kind of became convinced around that point as probably 2010 that uh, environmental work was my calling. It was what I really wanted to work on. It would get me out of bed every day and there was plenty to do there. Uh, so I'd never get bored. And I ended up going to work with the Aspen Institute uh, they, the Aspen Institute is a think tank, um, and they had a business school ranking at the time that was evaluating international business schools around the world on um, how well they were integrating sustainability into their core classes, into faculty research, all kinds of aspects of um, business schools. And so that was kind of how the private sector was tackling sustainability. And then, so I spent six years at Aspen and I ended up migrating over to the environment program and getting to work on some really amazing projects around international climate negotiations between China and the US government, kind of track two unofficial talks on the future of climate action. Uh, We also worked on um, African wildlife conservation and where uh, conservation of wildlife intersects with food production, um, particularly in in Southern uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So that got me more and more interested in how do you make environmental uh, progress on the ground? You can set these international commitments, you can set plans. We were working on the African Union kind of long-term vision plan, Uh, but I wanted to dig into something that was like local and over a few year time, I could see the progress that was being made and uh, understand the nitty gritty of it. Uh, So I ended up joining the Nature Conservancy in California and Uh, we were doing kind of more traditional um, conservation work, purchasing properties that were identified as biodiversity hotspots uh, before developers could get in. That was one big project we did outside of Truckee uh, up in the Sierra. And then uh, we had another set of projects that was in your old neighborhood um, in Sierra Valley uh, that were conservation easements. So rather than purchasing 
properties to protect them, we were partnering with landowners by uh, purchasing the development rights of properties, which turns out to be a lot cheaper than actually buying the land so you can conserve a lot more land at the same amount of money and people could continue to do the kinds of agricultural activities that they've been doing while also continuing to steward the, the habitat that was of interest to the, the conservation funders. So it was in digging into that work that I started to have all kinds of questions around how people make decisions around managing their properties, managing wildlife, the economics of it. And I had so many questions. I had this growing pile of books on my coffee table at home, and I had never considered a PhD, but I ended up pitching this kind of set of questions to Stanford as a, as a dissertation. And uh, here I am, 10 years after leaving my college <laughs> experience behind. I'm in the middle of my PhD now and really trying to understand how uh, landowners in California on rangelands are making decisions around their properties. And of course, rangelands are half of California. So it's a big area that we're talking about. And there's so many interesting aspects to dig into. Definitely. It's, it's uh, your, your past is like very uh, unique, but also very connected as well too. So that's, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. And I don't, I really don't think that we could have picked a more opportune time to chat as you've just released two new groundbreaking studies that you've been working on with your academic teammates, had a chance to really kind of dig into them. And first of all, congratulations. It must uh, feel really nice to have those, those out. And one study focused on really managed grazing on California annual rangeland in the context of state climate policy and another one really focuses on payment for ecosystem services study within a hybrid governance model on California rangelands. Would love to hear kind of like a, a high level overview of your research findings with those two reports, which I find to be truly fascinating and think many listeners uh, would as well. And really have some kind of follow-up themes that I wanted to further discuss with you uh, that I see throughout those studies. Sure. I'm really curious for your questions. Um, and I should say that there were a lot of people who worked on these both papers with me and also reviewers who just during the academic review process gave such insightful feedback that, you know, I spent a good year just kind of digesting their feedback and adding more studies. And anyway, it feels like very much a, a group effort. And so on the, the first paper was a literature review. The reason I wrote it was because coming into my PhD, I had been hearing a lot about regenerative agriculture, carbon sequestration, and using the movement of cattle to sequester carbon. So I'm not a soil scientist. I'm not a biogeochemist um, or any of those fancy things, but I wanted to understand what do we know today? What's in the literature as far as the impact of grazing on soil carbon? And my PhD is focused on California rangelands, which you know, rangelands in different places have very different characteristics. But you know, generally, for people who aren't familiar with rangelands with that term, it's basically lands dominated by grasses and forbs and shrubs, and they're usually used for herbivore grazing. And I say used because definitely in California and in most places in the world, they're anthropogenic ecosystems. They are managed. The term open space you know, is often used for these places, but they're not open. They're not empty. Um, they're very much actively managed by people for certain outcomes. One outcome, which is providing habitat. Another is producing food. 
Another is making it pretty so that people enjoy living in these environments. You know, there's different things they manage them for, but people historically have moved cattle around to achieve those goals. So I started digging into the soil research over the last 15 years, the um, biogeochemistry research, some policy analysis literature. And what I was finding was that California's rangelands, which are mostly annual rangelands, they're dominated by annual plants rather than perennials, at least since European settlement, they tend to be arid and semi-arid. And in these environments, it is difficult to reliably sequester carbon or augment your soil carbon using the management of cattle. And actually, there's there's been some great literature reviews um, done across the country, across the world, looking at all these different studies of when you apply different types of grazing systems, how much did the soil carbon change? And one of them was done by Richard Conant. And basically, they found in that case that fewer than half of the studies found uh, an increase in soil carbon with rotational uh, grazing, which is you know what I kind of started out looking at. And and part of that has to do with with moisture and kind of non people factors having a greater influence on outcomes than anything you might do as an individual, as a person moving your cattle around these biological and, and chemical factors, soil type, microbial communities in that specific spot uh, really influence outcomes more strongly than cattle uh, grazing management. So that was surprising to me, given how much the solution is, is supported. And there's a lot of, there's Areas where research is needed, where research is being done right now that are really exciting and I think should get a lot more funding to demonstrate where you can sequester carbon. So, for example, in the more the more moist climates in California, like along the coast, where there's also more perennial plants, you can see potentially increases in, in soil carbon. But it varies. And, you know, as you move towards the coast in California, it's a wetter environment. And as you move, move further north, so you have to really look regionally uh, and even at a smaller scale than that to understand what potential impacts there could be. The, the other thing that came out of this study, um, which Lynn Hunsinger, by the way, worked on with me. She's my advisor at Berkeley, my second advisor. The other thing we found was that there are trade-offs in managing a landscape for one outcome, and carbon is one outcome. We assume that by doing that, everything else will also benefit. It's a win-win situation is how this is often kind of advertised. But that's not necessarily the case. Like you can imagine if you put compost across a rangeland property, you could uh, increase soil carbon, but you might be impacting habitat. Um, studies have found higher levels of phosphorus and lead runoff with compost. So there's often some trade-offs that need to be considered. And then there's like the whole other people piece. I think these are anthropogenic ecosystems. So how do these activities impact yield and production agriculture? How is your, your forage production influenced by any of these recommended practices? And in the name of climate change action, a lot of things get recommended that I think should be very carefully considered alongside of other ecological outcomes of interest. So habitat, which species, some species will be winners and some are losers, no matter what we do in life, there are, you know, there's always those two. And identifying them and then making making an intentional moral decision that you know, as a society, climate change is so big that we need to give up this thing in order to achieve it. But you know, let's have that conversation in like an open and honest and scientifically informed way. Um, so that we can make those decisions. I tried to open up that conversation just by including a discussion on that in the literature review. 
No, definitely. It's really interesting. And thank you for sharing that with that particular literature review. You know, really a common theme I've, I've seen throughout your research really focuses on rangeland use policy, particularly in light of how conservation, grazing, development, and agricultural intensification or conversion kind of interacts with national or state climate policy and goals too. And it's interesting hearing you talk about the outcomes of as far as land management are going to have different outcomes depending upon what the the stated objective of of management, what you're trying to, to move towards. I think since the start of the pandemic, we've really seen a significant movement of people from cities to rural or suburban parts of California. And I imagine there's obviously many reasons for that since, you know, many people are working from home, having a home office has become a really much desired necessity. And for those with families, you know, the kids have a little bit more space to run around when they're, when they're doing social distance learning. And uh, I think, you know, generally you touched on uh, that kind of desire for rural Americana and wide open spaces. Also, I think, you know, having more wide affordable housing in those suburban and, and rural areas. But, you know, you, your study kind of also touched on as well to of movement of people from the city to the suburbs and rural areas in large part due to really a great expansion of entrepreneurs and small businesses, owners and certain industries that can really fully operate their business online and can practically live anywhere in the world with an internet connection. You know, real estate in many rural or suburban parts of the state really buzzing right now. And I'm curious with, I know it's kind of a, a long-winded question, so <laughs> stick with me on it. I, it will eventually circle back, but I know in California that Governor Newsom has proposed 30 by 30, uh, kind of first in the nation goal to conserve 30% of the state's land and coastal waters by 2030 to fight species loss and ecosystem destruction. And I also understand that they're kind of, as much discussion as far as how that goal is to be implemented currently in the governor's office. And I know nationally that President Biden has also done a similar proposal of 30 by 30 of his own uh, with a promise to protect, you know, 30% of U.S. land and 30% of U.S. oceans by 2030. And I know that there's also a significant housing shortage in California and nationwide for that matter. And there's really a dire need for more housing. And I noticed in, in the course of your studies that you really point to soil losses in California rangelands coming primarily from agricultural intensification and development. You know, specifically according to your sources, uh, we're losing about 10,000 hectare acres a year in California. Is that correct? Yeah. Another way to put it is we've lost about 1.4 million acres of ag land since the 80s. And I mean, I always frame it in, ter- in my mind, just because like something tangible, you know, that's, that's habitat. Um, like the monarch butterfly that we all in third grade, you know, we're hatching these chrysalises and whatnot. Right. They might be extinct in a few decades on the, on the West Coast because of habitat loss. We've lost 53% of grassland birds since the 90s due to habitat loss. So that, yeah, that's what we're talking about. And it's, it's ongoing. It's both, like you said, housing development and 
intensification for things like almonds and wine grapes and you know things that are driven by consumer preferences. Is there a comparison that for listeners or viewers that would be as far as what size approximately that is of, of California? You know, that's a great question. And I've done this before. Like, which state is it most similar to? And I can't remember off the top of my head. But No, no worries. It's definitely a uh, significant, significant value. Kind of interested on that with, you know, many have really claimed that we're in the midst of a rural renaissance of sorts. And kind of curious with the pandemic and kind of land uses, if these migration patterns hold and people remain in suburban rural areas, of the state post-pandemic. Really, in your opinion, what does a future open, working, grazing California landscape of the future look like? And I think that you kind of also alluded to that tension somewhat on a front of, you know, what the use is for the objectives that we're trying to achieve on rangelands of being different uses. But kind of curious on that, your take on how working open grazing landscape in light of the tension to build more housing, which leads to soil loss and agricultural intensification, which also leads to soil loss. That's kind of antithetical to the preservation of open working rangelands to actually being a part to successfully achieve national and state public policy climate goals. So I guess of kind of how do you envision working landscapes in the future in California to, you know, throughout throughout the state? I'm glad you brought this up. Um, one of the conclusions of our literature review is that the most promising climate mitigation, climate change mitigation opportunity on California rangelands isn't necessarily how we move our cattle around, whether it's rotational or open, you know, extensive grazing. The most promising opportunity is preventing conversion because of the the emissions associated with conversion to residential or commercial development or to high intensity agriculture. Like that's the win. That's the sweet spot that we know a lot about. We also know a lot about, you know, restoring marginal rangelands or cropland to rangeland planting trees, things like that. But like the big winner is just preventing conversion since it's continuing to happen right now and is a loss. So I'm also, I'm glad you asked me this question because we're both rural kids. You know, you grew up on a ranch. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. But um, the reasons people move to rural areas are for lifestyle and wellness and right. affordability and small community and all of these wonderful things. I don't think that I, well, let me put it this way. I think rural communities can be very much be benefited from the in-migration that's happening right now. It's been happening since the 80s. It's called the rural rebound by academics. Yeah. Huh. Going back to nature, you know, I guess you could say it happened earlier than that with the cultural revolution in China and other places, but like the draw of nature has never been forgotten by human civilization. And, right. and right. so people are now able to go back to it in a lot of cases. During the pandemic, there's been an interesting increase in direct-to-consumer, you know, CSA-type um, food purchasing programs. And I think that's an important way of stabilizing income for producers. So, for example, especially meat producers, if you're working with the commercial of the cattle market, people don't really know, the lay public doesn't really know how volatile that market is, where 
any given year, you could be taking a loss, you could be breaking even, or maybe you have to pay taxes because you, yay, made some money, you know, but it's it's a very difficult business to be in. And yet, if you have these periodic payments from a, a set your local community, from your set of customers that are loyal to you, that appreciate the quality of your product, then you can start to do some really interesting things around sustainability activities on your property because you have more money available to invest in them, maybe more time, uh, more interest. I think that's a good thing. There is there's this phenomenon I've been studying, and it's in the Sierra Valley study I shared with you. That's in review now. But there's been a, a comparison by academics in the literature between traditional cattle ranchers, traditional producers who are focused on you know creating a product off of their lands, and newer types of amenity landowners. They call them amenity ranchers who value the the lifestyle and viewshed aspects of their properties more than the the income value of their properties. I personally think it's actually a gradient um, between amenity and production and everybody is somewhere on it. And the most traditional production focused rancher is very much interested in the amenity values of their property. That's why they're there and willing to deal with the volatility of the cattle market because in the morning they can go out their door and see a sandhill crane or an elk or, you know, their children can play in a beautiful area. But even though people hold these similar values, amenity landowners, as they're moving into these landscapes, are doing different things. So they're tending to decrease the amount of grazing that's happening on their properties. And that's often, you know, if a conservation group tells them that it would be more sustainable or better for birds or better for their water uh, shed to decrease grazing, then for them, it doesn't make a big difference. They're not trying to make an income off their cattle. They're just trying to manage the landscape using grazing. Um, but the grazing is really the tool and not the, the outcome. So that's one difference. And then sometimes you get tensions between these two communities where uh, one is very much focused on conservation of habitat and the other is trying to make a living. And people might not like tractors and mud and cow poop on the road. And, and there's some cultural differences. But I think in places where these two communities have come together and decided that that these natural and working lands are very important and need to be maintained as such, you can see just great success. And I think Marin is one of these, these case studies where they embraced conservation easements, on agricultural lands. There was a lot of what Lynn Hunsinger has called cultural convergence. So people coming together and agreeing that this is a, a priority value. And then they've you know, successfully been able to conserve lands. And there's other reasons why that was successful and other places might struggle with it. But I think coming together across these communities to, to bring in new sources of funding, you know, sometimes these new landowners are incredibly well connected to either philanthropy, like private sector financing, or to policymakers, they can bring in new resources that the local community maybe wasn't tapping into before. And that can make a big difference. That's happening in Sierra Valley. Absolutely. No, it's really fascinating. You said too, of like kind of that, sometimes of that, what did uh, Dr. Hunsinger say? It was a cultural convergence. You said mm -hmm. it's really fascinating to think about, you know, amenity ranchers versus production, production ranchers. I think you're starting to see that play out in a lot of rural parts of the state and the nation for that matter. And I think what's fascinating too is the, you know, I work for a transportation company. I've seen, I mean, one of the big trends I've seen during this pandemic is the extreme growth of direct consumer for agriculture. And one of my passions, as, as I share with you as well too, is, you know, a food system, a more robust food system. And I think, you know, during the pandemic, we really saw the potential consequences of having a greatly consolidated especially on meat 
uh, front of having great consolidation, you know, processing facilities for cattle. But the kind of there's that also that tension there of the more not in my the NIMBY attitude with placing of processing facilities both locally and regionally to support a more direct to consumer agricultural ecosystem, you know, that in some ways of the opposition to having a processing facility in a particular location inevitably promotes a much more larger agricultural processing system because ranchers in particular are having to ship their cattle outside of the the state, a large majority of them to be processed. And I guess, you know, seeing that of the kind of the the differing components where I think that there's a lot of opportunities in, in rural and suburban landscapes throughout the state of partnering with entrepreneurs and logistics, I think is has been something where to create that story of where food comes from, you know, I think it's been something that has been a trend that's been going on for some time that people are now wanting, especially our generation, wanting to, you know, have greater visibility into where actually our, our food is coming from. And I think that, yeah. yeah. I'm going to push back on you for a sec. <laughs> Because I, I know I agree with all of this and I buy pasture raised pork from a guy online that's, you know, coming from a beautiful farm. I worry that we're not scaling these types of systems fast enough hmm. and reaching enough of the population. Um, and I say that because if you go to Trader Joe's and you want to buy grass fed beef, right. it's from Uruguay and it's from New Zealand. Right. You know, part of that is our seasons with you know, challenges of doing grass fed, but they have figured out a way to use large infrastructure supply chains, the like the the mainstream beef processing plants to also do grass fed. And I think I think these are the like we need still we need economies of scale in order to be competitive in an ever more globalized market. Right. Um, and there's so many of these small solutions, small scale. Um, you know, things that individual well-funded ranches can do, high capacity kind of ranches or farms can do across the country, but then getting past that 5% adoption um, and, and really having the majority of the public able to access this kind of food products. I think that's something that we really need to focus on too um, in order to keep most ranchers and farmers in business, not just those ones who are able to sell at the farmer's markets to a niche customer base. Right. Do you think that, in your opinion, where are the the hurdles, I guess, of further scaling that more direct consumer model? You know, part of it is, um, and this is something corporations are starting to tackle, but it's traceability. Um, so for instance, McDonald's doesn't really know what ranches they get their beef from because they know the people who get, get them the patties. You know, they kind of have one level down in the supply chain. And I think the more that the public and policymakers put pressure on these corporations to, to try to figure out their own supply chains and take responsibility for them, um, which they're starting to do, it's really exciting to see that progress. Um, but I have, I guess I have a lot of um, hope that these, these kind of supply chains can help move things faster and further and by bringing in just another level of, of financing. Right. So do you, do you think that in your opinion of having more 
I guess of the the bigger players having more traceability to you know further grow that direct to consumer market. Um, is that I think there's also like you know another camp as well too of wanting to support more like locally sourced, you know, that the life cycle of a cow, you know, as far as transportation and, you know, confined animal feeding operations. I know that there's a lot of, uh, you know, people who have uh, environmental reasons uh, for, you know, not liking confined animal feeding operations. Uh, I've done some research on, you know, uh, even like Montana State University having like some mobile processing facilities or, uh, you know, even multi-species processing facilities like lamb, pork, and, and cattle. Uh, but, that, but that's interesting that hearing you, uh, you know, talk about maybe even with the current existing players that maybe that's just a more ramping up or not ramping up, but a, a, a further traceability uh, for the cattle that are in, in the facility? I think we need both. I think we're going to, we need more of the, the local scale, regional food systems um, right. and kind of premium products for people who can't afford them. And then I think we need a lot of activism from the corporations to, um, to do things that they can from the farm level up to their, I mean, so the one thing that's changed recently is you know, historically, well, not historically, but in the last 10 years, people have talked a lot about carbon offsetting. So a company you know, has emissions and they, they buy offsets and they try to reduce their own emissions. In the last few years, they've um, shifted towards an idea called carbon insetting, where they don't buy necessarily these verified uh, carbon offsets, but instead they try to look at their entire supply chain of everyone's emissions um, associated with producing their product or service. And they're starting to go down to the farm level to see how do we invest in things like soil health and soil carbon and long-term resilience in order to kind of shore up their own supply chains and address associated carbon emissions. So I think similarly, you can see that um, that kind of thing playing out outside of the, the carbon space, uh, but just the resources that they bring to the table and their ability to get to the majority. I'm interested in like what the majority of America can can experience. Um, right. I think they can get left behind or left outside of these conversations. Um, you know, if you go to the farmer's market where I live here in Palo Alto and you want to buy happy pasture-raised bacon, there's a wait list. Wow. wow. <laughs> so, I mean, talk about accessibility. Like we need right. to do something at a different scale. Definitely. And it's interesting on the front of, you know, with soil loss through development and agricultural intensification, I feel like that's kind of a uh, somewhat of a stickier situation on the public policy level as far as, you know, even amongst the agricultural community in California and, you know, environmentalists or, or people involved with environmental issues, uh, you know, of kind of where is that, where is that balance? You know, where is that blend where, you know, sometimes with either vineyards or almonds, you know, being intensified agriculture that are taking away from livestock to graze there. Um, you know, and also the, as I alluded to earlier about the kind of the need that the governor has stated of 
needing to build more housing um, as well to keep up with the housing demand within the state. Um, how do those kind of, how do we balance that, that tension? Yeah. Your opinion. Um, so one framing that I think is, well, there's two ideas here I think are helpful. One is land cover, land use, land cover, which these words, this, these phrases are used a lot in the land change science community. Um, but basically land use is whatever you use the land for, whether it's residential or it's agriculture or it's, you know, a, a nature preserve. Um, and land cover is like the resulting vegetation or whatever's on top, like what you would see from a satellite, basically. And trying to connect those two things to understand what activities are compatible with uh, the land cover that we need for habitat or for climate or whatever it might be, and which ones aren't. And that gets the second idea, which is um, the gradient from land sharing to land sparing. Hmm. Uh, hmm. So land sparing is basically people who are supporting that side of the gradient think that um, we need to potentially intensify our land uses where they're happening in order to leave the rest of the land, the rest of the planet alone. And that's where the rewilding people come in and they want to create these large nature preserves and bring back bison or mammoths and is, you know, whatever it might be right. on a small scale. Um, at the other side of this, this gradient of land management is, is land sharing where, where those, these folks see agriculture or other uses as compatible with things like habitat. Um, and then, so there's studies in that space showing that, for instance, uh, irrigation for agriculture can support certain species that are very thirsty. Certain birds, for example, are right now dependent on leaky agriculture systems on farms. And if you were to make those farms uh, less leaky from a <laughs> groundwater management point of view, what potentially some birds could be impacted, right? Wow. So there's, there's that community too, and it, it is a gradient. Um, but I think as we're thinking of this, this um, gradient, it's useful to understand where grazing plays a role, where certain types of crop systems play a role. So for example, grazing, um, from a wildfire perspective, grazing can prevent shrubs from encroaching onto grasslands. And when shrubs encroach onto grasslands, when you remove any herbivores, whether they're wild or domesticated herbivores, when you remove them from the landscape and, and you have shrub encroachment, that's a greater wildfire risk, right? So then you, you have this kind of active uh, production agriculture type of management, but that also has a public service of, of preventing wildfire. Right. Um, so, you know, if I was sitting in the Office of Planning and Research or in the governor's office and trying to figure out what, <laughs> land, I mean, it turns out we're not in China. The government can't kind of decide who's going to do what, where, but right. we can create policies that influence land use at different scales. Um, for example, in Sierra Valley, um, where you're from, there's, uh, there's been an increase recently in uh, irrigated alfalfa production. And so environmentalists might look at that and say that rangelands are being plowed up for a crop. That's a very thirsty crop. It's a, right. the second leading crop in California after almonds and people never hear of alfalfa hay, but it's, you know, it's used for people's horses. It's used in the dairy industry, in the cattle industry. Um, but the reason that alfalfa production is increasing in Sierra Valley, and there's a few reasons for it, but one of it is that it's used as a feed, as a forage for cattle. And a lot of the land in the foothills that ranchers used to bring their cattle down to in the winter is now being converted to development. 
Right. Uh, so ranchers are just losing access to leases that they had for 25, 30 years. They know those lands better than anybody. You know, maybe generations have been riding those properties and, and using them for cattle. Um, and then other ones have been burned. Um, but, you know, from a government perspective, I think making sure that those really important feeding grounds, the winter feeding grounds, um, that those don't be, aren't converted to development, that can have impacts up in the mountain meadows. So there's like these connected systems um, that's called transhumance, where people are moving their cattle from the mountains down to the lower elevations. Um, we need to understand that the full food system as we're creating policy and, and how producers are making decisions around resources. Uh, they're working in these incredibly volatile systems where they constantly have to adapt to um, changing climate, changing precipitation, right. um, changing cattle markets, right. and making sure that they have room to function and, uh, is super important. I think also... Um, one way of doing that is uh, having developments where they do take place, um, having them include uh, grazing land for ranchers to be able to lease uh, for grazing rather than mowing them, for instance. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, of, you know, the whole concept of like the working rangeland, California rangeland of the future, you know, how that looks like, um, you know, of multi-species, you know, with potential with conservation easements. And like you said, I think it was interesting too, is I used to work for a nonprofit based in Truckee uh, that did dealt with a lot of, uh, you know, water, wildfire uh, mitigation issues as well, and folks around small businesses. And, you know, it was through that time there, it was fascinating to really fully and, you know, worked back in DC for a uh, California Senator and to learn California water policy and to kind of see how it's so systematic, you know, that it all starts upstream. You know, I think sometimes a lot of times people tend to think about like the Delta or the Central Valley as a standalone place or Southern California as a standalone place or the Bay Area in the Sierra Nevada. But I think what's fascinating about water and, you know, a, a case to be made about land use policy as well, too, that it's really systematic, you know, that the decisions made upstream in a water sense or made in certain part of the state is going to have an impact on the rest of the state as well, too. You know, it's fascinating of, you know, as we're looking to go into another potentially drought year uh, with the Sierra Nevada snowpack, um, you know, and the scene of coming on the heels of a record wildfire year uh, that's shaping up to be probably an, another wildfire, big wildfire year uh, of kind of the, those decisions as well that the ramifications of the amount of carbon that's released from these catastrophic fires. Um, and I guess kind of, uh, you know, from the conservation, land conservation side, uh, how, how do you see that role playing with, in particular with wildfire mitigation and particularly in like the wildlife urban interface zones, uh, you know, between like, a city core and a suburban core to a 
X, X urban core or rural core. Um, you know, how, how does, how does land conservation play into that? The wildland urban interface is very tricky. Um, you have these incredibly different communities knocking up against each other. So, you know, people go hiking in the rangelands around the Bay area that are being actively grazed by cattle. So ranchers are leasing a lot of those properties or they own them. There can be conflicts with, with hikers even and uh, ATVs and um, other land uses or people not thinking cows should be on the rangelands at all. You know, why is somebody using this land for agriculture when it's supposed to be open space? Those kind of conversations happen or people right. try to rescue calves <laughs> on their own dog. Um, but so that, that, you know, that's a challenge for ranchers working in that, in that interface. And yet you, you need to um, manage the vegetation buildup, uh, particularly in the WUI. Uh, so I've talked to utilities that face this, like water utilities that need to make sure that they're managing vegetation to prevent uh, the sediment that comes after wildfires from entering their systems. But for them to say rent goats, which people do for grazing, um, it's just a lot more expensive than going in with a boom mower and just mowing the place. So sometimes from a logistics perspective in the WUI, it's very difficult. Outside of these urban areas, um, I think a, a key, I think it's critical that we keep ranchers on the land. And part of that is because they're really actively managing them in a way that prevents wildfires by preventing shrub encroachment and keeping down these annual plants that just grow, you know, people who aren't from California are sometimes blown away by how tall the grasses get when you go hiking and you see an area that's small grazed. It is a thatch, right? And it's just a tinderbox if you don't have something grazing it. Um, and the, the way to do that, in my opinion, is to help producers in, uh, diversify their income as much as possible. Um, so rather than society moving away from supporting them and in their industry, um, when people talk about reducing, you know, needing to reduce your beef consumption because of climate change or whatnot, I think we need to make sure that we're paying ranchers for all of these different benefits that they're providing society, like habitat and water and land conservation. So ways to do that are um, paying them for planting trees through carbon credits. Uh, Another interesting income source that I'm investigating right now with a team here is solar. Um, so it's clean energy, where it should go. It usually goes on rangelands and it can be a really important stable income source to ranches. There can be environmental impacts. So you have to you know, be careful where you cite it. And at the local level, there ends up being often a lot of pushback. Like we're seeing this in, in North Livermore right now with a couple of big solar projects that the local community is fighting because um, it's an agricultural community and, and they're worried about the, the impacts there. Right. Um, but I think, I think there's a lot of new forms of financing that we haven't fully explored and considered, um, but should be prioritized, you know, if we want to achieve our climate and also habitat conservation goals. Right. That's really interesting hearing you talk about that, uh, you know, um, keeping ranchers on, on the land. And that's kind of one of my fascinations as well, too, of what does a 22nd century rancher look like, you know, and of a, a land steward, you know, I think that that's really provides for a lot of opportunities as far as how that looks like, you know, like, and like you said, that there's a, there's a, a benefit on, on top of, you know, producing livestock for food, uh, you know, their potential 
carbon sequestration or you know renewable energy projects uh you know habitat conservation as well too uh that provides a a value uh you know of kind of i guess that's kind of what you're saying is and correct me if i'm wrong a lot of the your second report as well too of kind of looking into the more ecosystem services as far as what markets are kind of established for landowners currently as there are there is that kind of a a newer space that's it is i mean so that the second paper i published is on carbon markets and specifically a new agricultural carbon market that uh, a host of organizations, um, nonprofit and for-profit like food and ag companies are developing. Um, it's going to be or it's set to be launched in 2022. And um, we were looking at how this carbon market could support um, farmers and ranchers. But in this study, we really looked at ranchers in California, um, how it could support their soil health goals. So if they wanted to make investments in um, soil health, building soil carbon, could they be compensated through this market and what some of the challenges would be, the opportunities, some of the risks that um, other programs could help to um, alleviate. Uh, but on the um, other ecological outcomes front, like habitat, uh, that's get, getting a lot less attention or at least traction because corporations have mostly set these climate change goals and are focused there. They definitely have not set habitat conservation goals, you know, at the McDonald's level and the General Mills, um, they seem to be more focused on, on climate. Right. Um, but you know, I, I should say that ranchers are already diversifying their income, right? So there's a t-shirt in the rural communities of behind every rancher is a partner who works in town. <laughs> right. People host wedding venues and Airbnbs. They're growing wine grapes. They're growing alfalfa hay in part so they can sell it to the equestrian community. And that's a really important income source for them. Right. Um, they're trying to do everything they can to have a lot of different sources of income. And what society can do to protect rangelands is to be innovative in coming up with new forms of, of payment for things that maybe uh, haven't been considered before, but are valued by society. You know, we're living right now in the sixth great extinction where we're losing um, species at an unprecedented uh, pace. So we've had great species loss before, but not at this pace. Um, right. And so any, I think right now we're hitting, we're reaching the point where we understand that maybe this is just as much of a priority uh, as, as other priorities we've had in the past. Right. It's, it's interesting too. I, I was recently saw as um, one of my friends was sharing on her social media, uh, this book called the lost words. And it talked about, uh, I think it's called the lost words uh, talked about in the Oxford dictionary, one of the most uh, frequently some of the the dictionary uh, terms that have been kind of deprioritized uh, last year were otter, like red fox, um, you know, like different wildlife and words that were more common, attachments, Zoom, uh, email, you know, kind of that shift as well too from, you know, kind of the, I guess of being able to reconnect, you know, our generation, older generations, and especially the younger generations coming up to the natural world um, is something that I think is, is truly fascinating to look at as well too. And, 
you know, I think part of that comes from like what you're saying of connecting people to the natural world and landscapes and, you know, having people appreciate that I think is important to ultimately achieving, you know, conservation and habitat preservation's objectives as well to even more important than that than environmental education i think is education around um the agriculture environment because right. most people myself included until i started digging into this don't really understand what a working ranch looks like you know they think maybe that cattle grow up and die in feedlots um and just the kind of the interactions, the ecological interactions that go on um, on these working landscapes, they're private right. lands and private landowners don't really have time to be doing PSAs all the time about right, their right. But They've gotten so vilified that um, I think we need to take a step back and, and, and address the public assumption that leaving lands alone is the best thing for them. Right. Right. <laughs> right. No, definitely. It's, it's, uh, it's super interesting to see, you know, a lot of, definitely a lot of conservation organizations as well too of, you know, trying to tackle that issue of, you know, as, as the uh, next generation comes up of, you know, having that better connection with the land and reconnecting back to the land in order to, because I, I don't think personally, if you don't have that relationship with the natural world, it's kind of hard to appreciate it. Um, as well too, you know, and there's a, a myriad of different positive benefits from, from open rangeland, open working rangeland, uh, that come that sometimes is not just one thing. It's a, it's a collection of things. So, you know, people in surveys, people already support environmental action, regardless of whether they're in urban areas, if they're minority, you know, whatever their, their background might be, there's kind of general consensus on this. Um, if anything, those of us who have the privilege of being more connected to nature probably have much larger climate footprints because we're flying around and, you know, purchasing right. beef from whoever, from uh, the middle of the country to get shipped to us in these freezer boxes. And um, right. so I think it's important that the public continue to support um, environmental action, but then uh, it's kind of on us to push policymakers and corporations to really drive it, you know, specific outcomes of interest. Definitely, definitely. Well, Nick, I want to be mindful of your time because I know we're coming up on on five o'clock. But was kind of curious as far as uh, where kind of future or what you currently are working on. Uh, you know that you're looking to uh, further. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so right now I'm working on, on uh, looking at solar in the Bay Area and also in the Central Valley, um, trying to figure out. So we have these, you mentioned, I think, uh, Newsom and also Biden has committed us to protecting 30 percent of lands by 2030. And then we have these clean energy commitments by 2045, 2050, you know, the state and national levels. So um, with that in mind, where are we going to put all of this solar? We need to build out, I think, about four and a half times solar, wow. uh, the solar capacity as we currently have. And since most of it's going on rangelands, who is it that's going to host this solar and why? Um, what should the contracts look like between the ranchers and the solar companies so that it works for both parties? Um, will ranchers adopting or hosting solar change their other land management practices at all? These are the things I'm really interested in. And um, we're also looking at 
rangeland solar capacity or potential versus urban areas. So if we were to pave over all of the parking lots and the rooftops in urban dense areas with solar, how would that production capacity compare with the uh, kind of solar arrays that are based on rangelands, at least for the Bay Area, you know, as a case study, it's something we're digging into. Huh. That's that's super fascinating. Is the is the solar solar piece is pr primarily the the renewable energy that's being considered statewide, at least? Say it again. Is the renewable uh, as as far as solar energy being the the primarily renewable vehicle? It's the, the highest, it's the highest potential opportunity. So like, uh, you know, our, our um, hydropower is largely built out, you know, what could be built out and um, wind is feasible here, but more feasible in the middle of the country in the Intermountain West. So okay. California is really just a solar hotspot where we can or and should build out a lot more solar capacity. So that's why we're looking there. But I think it's really interesting because Solar is basically taking photons and turning them into energy. And cows are also, you know, photons are coming into plants through photosynthesis being consumed by cows. And the cows are turning the cellulose into food that we can eat, which we then turn into energy. So it's kind of right. like the same process. And ranchers are somewhere in the middle there is like the filter and the, the, the economists who are making these decisions to figure out when it's worth it for them. Right. Well, it's just fascinating to see the picture. Sometimes I, I know even some, uh, you know, ranch properties and the East Bay or the Bay Area, you know, having the cattle grazing on the bottom and then these big wind turbines, uh, you know, spinning overhead as well, too. So it's kind of, it's, it's fascinating to see with what, what the future holds with, you know, those open working landscapes, how those look like in the future um, to also you know, combat climate change and, uh, you know, truly recreate a, a new new economy. <laughs> yeah, it's a new space. They're calling it agrovoltaic. So how do you combine agriculture with PV? Wow. To, um, but I think there's a lot more research needed on both the environment side, you know, how how birds are impacted and insect, aquatic insects in particular, and, and soil. How do you develop a technology to mitigate some of those impacts and cite it smartly? Um, and then uh, on the people side, how do you create these sustainable economies into the future um, that create the outcomes we want? Definitely, definitely, definitely. Well, Nick, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. I know you and I could go on for hours. It's, it's so yeah. fascinating. I love this subject matter. It's so, so interesting. Um, and I'd love to have you back when, because uh, I know you're working on particularly a, a study research around uh, with case study of Sierra Valley, my hometown, and would love to have you back on when that's, uh, you know, officially published and talk more about, about that study. But I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Um, how can people uh, learn more and support your work, Nick? Oh gosh, I would love to connect with anybody who's interested in this and hear their thoughts on the, the couple new papers. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. If you just search Nicole Buckley Biggs, I'm there, the papers are posted um, if they can't access. I mean, the crazy thing is we want people to make science-based decisions in this world and yet science is being made in academia and then locked in these academic journals that you have a paywall to access. So reach out to me directly and we'll talk and, um, I would love to continue the conversation with anyone and you next time. Thank you for having me on the podcast.
No, of course, it's it's fascinating. I, I love I love uh, you know going through it, analyzing and discussing your your research findings. They're really fascinating. So, thank you so much for joining, Nick. Appreciate it. Until next time. Take care. <laughs> thank you for listening to Janassi Ranch podcast. I hope you will join me in this journey as I continue to speak with people who are reimagining the way we work, live, and eat. Please subscribe and share with your community.